0: hi how's everybody doing welcome to redemption arcadia we are glad that you are here thank you scripture reader was that eugene yeah okay good thanks gene appreciate it good job he was singing reading he's doing everything this morning as uh usual it was david okay thank you david really struggling this morning Thank God it's Romans this morning and the struggles will be over shortly because Paul will be preaching to you So that'll be good news Uh, My name is Frank. I am the uh, primary communicator here and uh, one of the pastors here at Redemption Arcadia And uh, if you're new here, the reason we call it Redemption Arcadia is because Redemption Church is actually one church with seven congregations So there are six other congregations uh, Meeting uh, around the state of Arizona right now with the name Redemption and so we uh we always uh, pray for them as they meet as well, uh, and we're glad to be a part of a of, of a much bigger organization than just here, but we also love our community here uh, in Arcadia. And, and again, if this is your first time, we welcome you. We're glad that you are here. Uh, we'd love to be able to serve you in any way that uh, we can. Uh, just let me breeze through a few announcements. These announcements are in your bulletin, so... Uh, you can take all the information home, but I just want to make sure that you're aware of them. First of all, and they involve the next three Sundays. Next Sunday, the 16th, we have a Connect class, uh, which will be during this service, the 11 o'clock service. If you're fairly new uh, to uh, Redemption Church and you want to know more about it, uh, this and, and maybe kind of figure out how to get connected, this would be a time to do it. Eugene, the guy who is singing over here, does teach the class uh, for us. Um, and, and he helps you to understand. He's also our leader of, of Redemption Communities here, too, so he'll help you to figure out how to get com- uh, connected in that way. If you have uh, questions about, you know, what we believe in our faith, all that stuff, you can come and, and ask Eugene. And he has donuts, so that's usually a fairly big attraction as well. And then the following Sunday, the 23rd, is our annual church picnic. Uh, that'll start at 4 o'clock, uh, and it'll go until and until it's done so probably dark so sometime around 6 or six 30. Uh, it'll be at Pierce Park which is just a little bit south and a little bit east of here at 46th Street and Oak. Uh, there will be uh, food there. It, you'll have to pay for it. It's, it's a short lease which leash which is a food truck a really good food truck. They'll be there. We will provide all of the beverages for you uh, and then the recreation will be up to you, so you've got to bring the footballs, the frisbees, the golf clubs, the hula hoops, volleyballs, whatever it is that you're going to bring. Uh, last year we had a really terrific frisbee football game that was a lot of fun, uh, a lot of other stuff going on uh, as well, so we'd love to see you there. And then finally, uh, on, on March 2nd, and this is the one that we really need to hear from you about to make sure that we get this right, Um, is uh, we're going to have child dedications again. We weren't going to do this again until May, but um, we've had some people ask if we could do them sooner, and so we've already had some sign up for that. If you're ready to have your child dedicated, uh, your baby dedicated, uh, just go ahead and and let Stephanie know in the office. So you can go to our website. We've got uh, email addresses on the bulletins that you can figure that out with as well, and and, uh, get connected that way, and we will uh, dedicate your child on, on Sunday, March 2nd. Uh, let me pray, and then we're going to get into the text today, which is Romans 8. We're right in the middle of it, and uh, so you could be turning there uh, in the meantime. God, again, we, uh, uh, we come to you and we, we, just, we acknowledge who you are. We acknowledge your sovereignty. We acknowledge your grace that you've demonstrated through Jesus Christ and, and what he's done for us, not only on the cross, but through his resurrection and, and, and we, just, we just worship you and praise you because of who you are. Uh, because you've called us and you've, you've, you've adopted us, which is what we're going to be talking about today. This is an unbelievable gift that you've given us. And I pray that we would walk out of here today understanding the depth th- that, that this adoption into your community means to us. That's our prayer. You've communicated that via Paul by the power of the Holy Spirit. We acknowledge that. But, but now we just want to rest in that for the next 40 minutes and just try to understand it. So we pray that your Spirit would open our hearts and our minds to this text and, God, that we would walk out of here secure in our faith because that's what our faith is. It's secure because it's by your power, your grace, and it's for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been in Romans 8. We've been going through the entire book of Romans starting last year in in April. And we've been in Romans 8 for four, five, six weeks now. We're going to be in Romans 8 for nine uh, weeks. It's an awesome chapter. And and just by way of review, uh, Paul's been telling us how as a result of being Christians, we are alive right now in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in us now. This is not something we're looking forward to. This is not something that is going to happen in the future if we do a bunch of things right. This is something that if you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within you right now. The Spirit of life and peace is with you right now, leading you, guiding you, talking to you. He also says that we belong to God now. We're, we're going to talk more about that today, but he's already been making that point that, that we belong to God. God is, because, and because we belong to God, he is our protector and our provider. And I understand that sometimes we look at our lives and, and, and we question whether or not God is protecting us and providing for us. We would like some input on how he's doing that. But we need to understand that, that God is sovereign and he knows all the backstories and he knows exactly what we need. And he also understands that this life is temporal and that, and that, and that the reality is that this is going to be a long haul. This is going to be eternity. And so he knows exactly what it is that we need. Even if we don't necessarily feel like it, he will always protect us and provide for us. And also Paul has told us now that, that we're going to participate in the resurrection that it's not just about our sins being forgiven and us being able to stand righteous before God based on the work of Jesus Christ, but we also participate in his resurrection as well. What this means is that our our future is absolutely secure. And because we know our future and that it's secure, we can live now in hope. And this hope is not based on on some earthly understanding that if we can align everything correctly and make sure all the circumstances get right, and then if you and I can manipulate something properly, then maybe what we want to happen will happen. That's not it at all. This is a promise from God, the creator God of the universe who says, you will live in the resurrection in the new Jerusalem, and so we can live now with confidence and peace and hope and trust and faith and joy. Because our future we know our future, it is guaranteed and then and then last week as as Sean preached, I was wondering why I couldn't see any of you. oh, there you are, okay, <clears throat> last week, as Sean preached verses nine through thirteen, we were again told about the power of the spirit within us and 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 the the importance of being able to walk by the Spirit and just trusting that. And then he moved into, originally he was just going to do verses 9 through 11. But as uh, the leadership team and all the redemption churches started looking at the text, we thought maybe 12 and 13, even though in the ESV Bible it's included with this paragraph we'll look at today, maybe, maybe it also looks back, even more so than it necessarily looks forward to. I would call them hinge verses. They're, they're verses that do <clears throat> culminate Verses nine through eleven, but also introduces to and open the door to this understanding and this idea of adoption that we get in fourteen through seventeen. And so we're going to look again at verses eleven and twelve. I'm sorry, twelve and thirteen today. Sean got us started on them last week, but we're gonna we're gonna dig deeper with them. And in verse twelve, it says that we are debtors, and Sean talked about this last week. Paul says we are debtors, but then he does something interesting. He doesn't define this through the positive. In fact, he does something that a lot of humans are used to. He defines it through the negative. He says, we are debtors, but not to the flesh. And he never gets around to saying exactly who it is or what it is that we're debtors to. I think we know what it is, and I'm going to talk about that. But, but he, says, he defines it by saying, no, we are, we are debtors, but not to our flesh. We are no longer debtors to sin. And the reason we're, we're not debtors to our flesh is because our flesh really can't do anything for us. We are, in fact, debtors to God. But we need to understand what it means to be debtors to God. Because the minute we hear about being debtors to God, what, what, what we begin to think about is how we need to work for God, and we need to do stuff for God. And that, and, and that we, have, we have to do penance, and, and we have to start stacking up our good deeds for Him. And that's not at all what Paul is talking about. So there's two things I want us to understand about Us being debtors to God. And here's the first one. It's a debt that you and I could never, ever, 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 ever repay. We could never repay this debt. Even if we tried real hard. And that is challenging for us to understand. And the reason it is, is because of Genesis 3. It's because of the fall. It's because of original sin. Original sin has not only corrupted us, but it has also corrupted all of creation And as a result, God brings a curse on creation and on the man and the woman, and and we have to now work hard for everything. And so we just have this, as part of the corruption, as part of original sin, we have this idea just knitted into us that, that everything requires work. And so then we approach our salvation with God, and we think we need to work for it. And that's not true. There's nothing we can do, nothing that we can work for to get God to say, okay, you're worthy of being saved. We bring nothing to the salvation table except one thing. We bring our sin. That's it. That's the only thing we bring to the salvation table. So so this debt that we have to him, we can never actually repay. Therefore, we must learn to live in his grace. That's hard to do. By the way, that's one of the reasons why why Jesus gave us his Holy Spirit so that he could help us, the paraclete. He could help us to learn how to live in his grace, but that's what we need to do. That's one of the things we need to pray that God would, by the power of his Holy Spirit, would help us to understand. Help us to understand what it means to live in grace and just receive his love and his provision and his protection. That's what we need to do. We could never pay him back, so we need to learn how to be recipients of his grace. I have a friend who's a pastor, magnificent pastor. He's also a a prolific father. He's got a hockey team for a family. He's got six children, okay? And they're all pretty young. Uh, One of the oldest children is an 11-year-old boy, and he's got a flip phone, and so he can text with his dad. And those of you that have a lot of children, or even a few children, you understand that at some point, the older children are in charge of the younger children. Amen? Right? Okay, so he's 11, and he's starting to kind of watch some of the other kids for his mom and dad. He sent me this text conversation, gave me permission to use it, sent me this text conversation between he and his son that took place just a couple of weeks ago. It is a beautiful illustration of how we need to learn how to live in the grace of God. And I want to give you this text. It'll take us maybe eight minutes to work through it, but I want you to hear this. It's a perfect illustration. So it starts with the son. And then they go back and forth. So here's how the son starts it. Texts his dad. He says, hey, dad, you don't have to, but I was wondering if for watching the kids twice, I could have a dollar for my game on my iPod. Father texts back, LOL, seriously? Laugh out loud. LOL, seriously? Just ask me for the dollar. Do not try to make me owe you the dollar. If I somehow owe you money, then you are in big trouble. You are in major debt to me for all that I have done for you as your father. Now, if you, if you just want me to give you a dollar, that's a different story. Son texts back, you can give it to me because I watched them, but you don't owe me. It's because I did a good job at watching them and you think you should give me, give me a dollar for it. Father texts back, what if I just want to give it to you because I love you and I enjoy giving you stuff when I can? If I did it because of work you do for me, wouldn't you owe me because of all I do for you? Could you ever pay me back for all I have done for you? Are you starting to catch this theological drift here? This is, this is a father and a pastor who seizes a teachable moment, my brothers and sisters. So he says all of that and his son texts back, okay. He's like thinking now, "Mm, why did I even ask in the first place? So the father texts back, okay, what? (laughs) Son texts, what do you mean? Now understand, at this point, I imagine him rolling his eyes going, why am I doing this? Okay, father texts back, read what I wrote you and think about what I'm saying. Son texts back, no, I could never repay you. Father, okay, so if it is out of work, (coughs) so if it is out of work, I owe you nothing, but if it is out of love, I will do all I can. Does that make sense? Son, yeah. Father, this is the core of our relationship with Jesus. I can never say to Jesus, look what I did, give me something in return. But I ask him because he loves me. See what I mean? Son, what are you saying? (laughs) Father, I told you it was long. Father, think about this because it took me a long time to understand it myself. Here's what I'm saying. I love you, son, more than you can ever do for me. I'm thankful how you're growing and learning. It makes my gift to you pointless if I'm doing it because I owe you. I love you, and I want to give it to you for that reason. The Son, I understand. Father, do you see how this relates to our relationship with Jesus? Son, yeah. Father, how? <laughs> son because jesus doesn't owe me anything and because he loves me he provides me with my needs even though i don't deserve anything father amen that should give you great joy confidence and trust it also here you go it also sets you free to live in god's grace i love you son son okay thank you i like your lesson but i never got my answer about if i could have a dollar Father, laugh out loud, yes, I would love to give you the dollar because I love you. Thanks, Dad. It's awesome, right? That's better than any commentary, any theologian. We could have Spurgeon or Luther standing here, and this is better than that. This gets at the core of what we're trying to talk about here. So, So that's the first thing. We can never pay back God. So understand our debt is not something that we have to sit around and obsess about and worry about. We are debtors to him, and that leads to the second point about what it means to be a debtor to God, and here it is. When Paul writes this, he's talking about two specific things. He's first of all looking forward to what he's going to write in Romans chapter 13, which we'll get to in five or six years, where he says, it's the challenge of preaching verse by verse, which is where he says, do not owe anything to anyone except what? A debt of love. And the reason we owe that is because God has loved us first and loved us in a way that nobody could ever possibly love us. So we owe that debt. But then second of all, what he's doing here is he's specifically looking back to chapter 7, verses 25, 24 and 25, where, where, where the gospel is proclaimed clearly and unequivocally when Paul says, What a wretched man I am! Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our son, Jesus Christ. What a wretched man I am. I'm the problem. Who will save me? I can't save myself. Thank you, God, for doing what I am completely powerless to do on my own. So it's a debt of gratitude. It's a debt of thanksgiving. So we live our lives in in thanksgiving to God. When, when, When we are grateful and thankful to someone Don't we desire out of love, not out of guilt or shame, but out of love to serve them? I've told this story before, I'll tell it again, uh, because I think it's it's an earthly, which means it falls short, but it's a a decent illustration of what this means. Uh, About four years ago, I was with a good friend of mine, Um, uh, he's he's an ex-con, I I met him while he was in prison, he was in the federal, federal penitentiary here and in Texas for five years, He's out, he's on parole, we, we've, we, we established this relationship while he was in prison, now we're still friends now, we're going hiking up at Wilson Mountain outside of, of Sedona, one of the great hikes in, in Arizona, and, and he had to get special permission from uh, his probation officer and all of that, he had a letter and all that stuff, and so we go up there, we hike, and we're on our way back, and we're on the I-17, and we're heading into uh, the Verde Valley, so you're going down that, um, that very steep uh, section there. And as we're driving along, I, I tend, to, in, in 75 uh, zones, 75 miles an hour zones, I tend to drive 80 because everybody knows that they're not going to pull you over if you're only five m- miles over the speed limit, right? Okay? So I'm also a sinner, and I, you know, it's a law, and it just stirs me up. So anyway... Uh, I'm going 80, and we go by a police officer, and Andre goes, hey, man, there was a cop back there, and you're going 80. And I said, they never pull people over for going five miles over. So he pulls out and turns on his lights, and he pulls me over. Andre's going, we're in trouble. (laughs) He says, you're going to get a ticket, and I'm going to get hassled because I'm I'm parolee, you know, or I'm on probation, you know. I said, well, let's see what happens. So pull off into the little area where um, the, the runaway trucks go right before you get into Camp Birdie. And he comes up, takes our driver's license, licenses, he goes back to his car. And I've had warnings before, and understand, I know how this works. If you're going to get a warning, he's not going to be at his car for very long. If you're going to get a ticket, he's going to be there a while. So he's there a while. And literally, after about seven or eight minutes, Andre and I, at the same moment, we look at each other and we go, I'm getting a ticket, okay? We both thought I was getting a ticket. And he was getting nervous because even though he was okay, he's still on probation and that can cause some problems. Finally, the police officer comes back, hands us back our IDs, and he says, listen, the speed limit is 75, it's not 80. I'm going to let you off with a warning, but would you, would you please just slow it down a little bit? And we were like, thank you. So the next 20 minutes, okay, I'm driving through the Verde Valley and back up the, the hill and everything, and I never go over 73.5, okay? Okay. And Andre's watching this. I can see him. I can sense him looking over at the speed limit. And finally, after 20 minutes, he goes, you're just so scared. <laughs> and I said, no, it's not fear. It really isn't, Andre. It's not fear. I couldn't imagine if this guy is now patrolling where I am now, him pulling me over again for speeding and having to explain that I just spit in the face of his grace. I'm grateful and thankful for what he did for me, and I want to honor and respect that. That's, that's part of, of living um, a, a life that 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 understands that we our debt is, is, is thanksgiving and gratitude it 's not works it 's not money it 's not penance and so all of this then sets us up for this beautiful truth that we look at in the four verses uh, today, which we call the spirit of adoption. So let me reread those four, those four verses it 's chapter eight verses fourteen through seventeen, where Paul writes. There's so much here. We could be here all day, but we're not going to be. There's three things I want to just pull out here. Three points. Here's the first one. In Christ, you and I are no longer slaves to fear. We're no longer slaves to fear. Why? Because we're now gods. He has irrevocably adopted us. He has taken us in. Listen, he didn't just forgive our sins and then say, okay, see ya. He has called us into relationship with him. We are a part of his family. He is our father now. And so we no longer fear, specifically as Paul says here, it's not that we fear the world, it's not, that, it's not a fear of any of these other things, which Paul talks about in other places in the New Testament, but specifically here he says you no longer fear your flesh. You no longer fear the deeds of the flesh, you no longer fear sin. And what is it that we fear about sin? Two things generally. Number one, we fear the power that sin has over us the ability for sin to just make us do the things that we don't want to do or maybe do the, uh, make us not do the things that we should be doing. So we fear the power of sin, and we also fear the eternal consequences of sin, the condemnation and the punishment. And, and Paul says you don't have to live in that fear anymore because of what Christ is, has done. You don't have to live uh, worried about the power of sin. You have the power Because of the Holy Spirit, not you, but because of the Holy Spirit living in you, you have the power now not to sin. You have the power now to do the things that God calls you to do. Do we always do them? No. It's still a battle, but we do have that power when we're living in the Spirit. And at that same time, we never have to fear condemnation, judgment, and punishment. And listen, I want to make sure we say this. We... Some people would hear that and go, he's just sweeping sin under the rug. He's naive about sin. He's blowing off sin. No, I'm not. We need to acknowledge that sin is a very serious thing. It's a serious thing. So if it's serious, we need to know about sin. We need to be realistic about sin. We should put sin to death, as as verse 13 tells us. And we need to be wise and graceful uh, when it comes to sin. Because sin is relentless. We can't just sweep it under the rug because sin is relentless. And I know some of you are like, I've been through this. I've been a Christian almost 30 years. I've been through this. I understand this feeling. Some of you are like, really? I thought that the longer I was a Christian, the less I would sin and the less I would have to deal with sin. Well, this is a marathon. Not a sprint. There's a guy named John Gerstner, who's a wonderful scholar, pastor, and author. Uh, was working in his office one day. had a, had a That night, he had a big party to go to. He was looking forward to it in somebody's big, grand uh, house. But he's working hard that day, working through the afternoon, working into the early evening. And he's working with newsprint and books and papers and, and pens and all this stuff. And his office is a little bit dark. It's not that well lit. And so uh, he finally finishes his work. He's getting ready to go to the party. He doesn't have time to go home before the party. And so he gets up and he looks in the mirror in his office. And he's kind of bald. But what he has there, he wanted to just adjust it and make sure it looked all right. So he's kind of doing this, you know. And then he goes to the party. And he walks into this party. It's a beautiful house. And it's well, well lit. Chandeliers everywhere. And he's spending the first ten minutes of the party talking to people and engaging with people. And then at about 10 minutes in, he says he he looked over and there was a mirror over there and he suddenly realized that he had smudges of ink and dust all over his forehead that he didn't see in his office, but could now clearly see in the light. And obviously he was embarrassed, but he said there was a theological lesson there for him. The longer we walk with Christ, the longer we know God, the longer we're a part of his family, the closer we get to him and the closer we get to the light. And the more we see about our lives, the more sin we see, the more, the more we see the smudges and the flaws in our life. And I know for some of us, we hear that and we go, that's really frustrating that's really discouraging. No, it shouldn't be. It should be a source of great encouragement because, because it means we're getting closer to God, and it means that we can humbly in, engage with God even more and more and more. He's not going to look at us more closely and go, okay, you're really a sinner. Now I reject you. He's going to bring you closer and closer and say, you're, doing, you're getting closer to me. By the power of my spirit, you're getting closer. You're really finding out about my holiness and understanding my character. And the more we do that, the more we love him. And I know how discouraging it can be because as a pastor, I've had this conversation literally hundreds of times when somebody will come to me and say, Pastor Frank, I'm really worried, man. I'm really worried. I don't know if I'm a Christian. I keep looking at my life and going, there's so much sin. In fact, there's more sin now than when I first came to Christ. It seems like there's just more sin. I'm really a sinful person. I don't think I'm saved. No, that's a sign of maturity. It should encourage you. And the fact that you even ask that question means the Holy Spirit is working in your life. You're walking with the Spirit when you do that. So rather than being a source of discouragement or frustration, you should say, you know what? It's good that he's pointing these things out to me. Because he's not going to point them out to, the, to those that aren't his kids. He disciplines his own kids. He cares for his own kids. He loves his own kids. And so he's going to point that out in us. This is good news for us. This is why I'm so certain that that not only is Paul a Christian when he writes Romans 7, 14 through 25, but he's a mature Christian when he writes it. Because mature Christians know there's this unbelievable battle going on. And so we acknowledge sin like grown-ups, and we fight sin by his power, and we live in gratitude by God. And so, So we do this by grace and faith and we fight on by His grace and faith. So in Christ we're no longer slaves to fear, the fear of our flesh. Secondly, in Christ we are God's chosen children, therefore the spirit of adoption surrounds us. In Christ we are God's chosen children, therefore the spirit, the ethos of adoption surrounds us. We've been adopted by God and so we receive and live by this spirit. And it is a great thing. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 1. God did not give us a spirit of timidity. He didn't give us a spirit of fear or insecurity or defeat, but rather he gave us a spirit of love, power, and self-control because God has given us himself. Now here's the key to this idea of adoption. The key is that Paul paints A picture of adoption using the Roman world's understanding of adoption. And we should understand that as well. Because he's saying this is what it means to be adopted by God. It's irrevocable. Irrevocable. So here's what it means. In in the Roman world, this is how adoption works. Number one, the father chooses. He chooses. The, the, The one being adopted never gets to choose. The father chooses. Second of all, the one who's adopted receives all the rights all the rights as a natural heir in fact by law they receive even more a biological child in the roman in the roman world could be disowned but once you adopt somebody in the roman world you cannot be disowned so there's even there's even greater rights for one who is adopted in other words your status changes completely you have a complete change of status I know it's a hackneyed illustration, but it's a beautiful illustration. It's, it's the movie The Blind Side. It's Michael Orr being adopted by that family. And, and here's another thing. It's not in, in, in Roman culture. It wasn't just children who got adult, uh, adopted. It was adults. Adults would get adopted. And the one adopted is supposed to perpetuate the family name. Now, think about the ramifications for that of that for us in the kingdom of God and in the body of Christ. The one who's adopted is supposed to perpetuate the family name. We are gospel-centered, which means we're called to be adopted by God, but then we are to perpetuate the family name, which means we are outward-focused, and we go out and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ to everyone. And then we need to also understand that this is not transactional. There is nothing quid pro quo about this. It is straight, unmerited favor, grace, Mercy, election. The adopted one never chooses their parents and never owes the parents anything except gratitude. Because the parents chose the child. One day you're in the the house as a servant. You're you're just a slave and you're in bondage to slavery. And the next day you wake up as an heir, an owner with, with a name and with an identity and with rights and privileges. And by the way, let's make sure we get this. That word translated adopted is literally in the Greek sonship. But here's what Paul is saying. He's writing this church in Rome which had women in the church, right? He's saying... This applies to women too for that time in that culture would have been radical. They they would have gasped as they read this. If you've been adopted by God, you are included regardless of your status. You have a new status now in Christ Jesus when he adopts you. It's radical. And verse 16 says, the Spirit himself, God himself, speaks to our spirits, speaks to our souls with absolute authority, and he says, you're mine, you're my children. Now now listen, all of us at some point, every one of us, right, has wished that somebody would just choose us. Wouldn't somebody choose us? You're you're sitting in a classroom. There's 28 people in the class. You don't know anybody in there. And you're just wanting somebody to talk to you, somebody to choose you, somebody to to look around the room and not look at you and go sit somewhere else, but look at you and sit by you. You want to be chosen. When they organize teams and group study projects, as much as we hate group study projects, still, you want to be chosen. You want to be included. Sitting in your car, you're driving along, Why won't somebody choose me? You're sitting in your cubicle at work. I sure wish somebody would choose me. Why wouldn't somebody terrific choose me? You're sitting on a bar stool and you're going, even one of the losers in here, I wish they would choose me, man. You're sitting at the park. Would somebody choose me? You're sitting on your couch watching Office reruns. Why don't Pam and, 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 and Jim choose me? Why do they choose each other? Why not me? It's okay if Michael Scott doesn't choose me. But Jim or Pam, that would be cool. Sitting on a bench press at L.A. Fitness. Would somebody please choose me? Here's the good news. The creator God of the universe chose you. The creator God of the universe chose you. He's your father. That's a great start. I think we can work with that. And so Paul says we cry in verse 15. We cry Abba Father. Literally, it's it's intimacy with daddy. We cry, daddy. And listen, I know this language can be problematic, so let me just say a couple words about that, because I know that. I understand that. There there are bad fathers. I know. I get that. Now, I haven't firsthand necessarily experienced that. I have a very good father. He's not perfect. My mom will tell you that. He's not perfect. But but he's a he's a good father and many of us have that many of us have a good father and and so we appreciate that by the way let me just say this one of the things i have been so encouraged about in the last two years at redemption arcadia is coming in here and seeing all these young fathers who by the power of the holy spirit are determined to live as gospel-centered fathers And be good fathers, not by their own works, but because the Holy Spirit resides in them. And I watch these young fathers being magnificent earthly fathers. And I am so encouraged by that. And I'm so humbled by that. And it's a great thing. It's it's a testimony of the power of God in this world, even today, with the corruption that we have. And it's wonderful, and I thank you guys for that. So I acknowledge... There are good fathers, there, there are bad fathers, but, but we also should admit should at least admit that there are also misunderstood fathers. You understand that? How many of us have misunderstood our father and then and then after some time and some light is able to shine on the situation, we go back and we say, okay, he wasn't so bad, he was just misunderstood. So can we at least acknowledge that? And maybe there's an opportunity for reconciliation and restoration there. Then I also know, I know for a fact that there are... There are those with no fathers. And I understand there was at one time a biological father, but there's no father now. There hasn't ever been a father. And I know that's very painful. I understand that. But also, the last thing we need to acknowledge is that there is one perfect father. There is. There is. And even in the midst of tremendous pain, you and I cannot judge or attribute or assign character to God on the basis of our earthly father. Either bad character or good character. Either one. It doesn't work. You and I cannot look at the heavenly father and think of him as a derelict just because our earthly father was a derelict. But also you and I cannot look at our heavenly father and and think of him as sweet old pappy either because he's not that either. He is the creator God of this universe. And, and, and rather than looking at our heavenly father through the lens of our earthly father, we need to be looking at earthly fathers through the lens of our heavenly father. That's the way it should, it should work if we're going to do this comparison at all. And I want you to, those of you that have had trouble with this, I want you to picture the dad that you wish you had. And I want you to understand that God is way better than that dad. No matter what picture you have of a, of a father, God is better than that. And he shows us that because he sent us his son. And so we cry, Abba, Father. We cry, Daddy. Some of you have heard this story before. It was in Christianity Today a few years ago. I'm going to read it again. Even if there's just one person in here who hasn't heard it, you need to hear this story. It's from Russell Moore. The creepiest sound I've ever heard was nothing at all. My wife Maria and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union on the first of two trips required for our petition to adopt. Orphanage staff led us down a hallway to greet the two one-year-olds we hoped would become our sons. The horror wasn't the squalor and the stench, although we at times stifled the urge to vomit and weep. The horror was the quiet. The place was more silent than a funeral home by night. I stopped and pulled on Maria's elbow. Why is it so quiet? The place is filled with babies. Both of us compared the stillness with the buzz and punctuated squeals that came from our church nursery back home. Here, if we listened carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth, the crib slats gently bumping against the walls. These children did not cry because ev- infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort and for love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped. The silence continued as we entered the boy's rooms. Boys' room. Little Sergei, now Timothy, smiled at us, dancing up and down while holding the side of his crib. Little Maxim, now Benjamin, stood straight at attention, regal and czar-like, but neither boy made a sound. We read them books filled with words they couldn't understand about saying goodnight to, moon, to the moon and cows jumping over the same, but there were no cries, no squeals, no groans. Every day, we left at the appointed time in the same way we had entered, in silence. On the last day of the trip, Marie and I arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the minute we received our adoption referral. We had to tell the boys goodbye, as by law, we had to return to the United States and wait for the legal paperwork to be completed before returning to pick them up for good. After hugging and kissing them, we walked out into the quiet hallway as Maria shook with tears, and that's when we heard the scream. Little Maxim fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew, maybe for the first time, that he would be heard. On some primal level, he knew he had a father and a mother now. I will never forget how the hairs on my arms stood up as I heard that yell, I was struck, maybe for the first time, by the force of the Abba cry passages in the New Testament, ones I had memorized in vacation Bible school, and I was surprised by how little I understood those passages until now. We cry, Daddy. We cry, Abba, Father. The spirit of adoption surrounds us. Redemption Arcadia, we need to understand it's wonderful that we're forgiven. It really is. It's wonderful that we're forgiven. But it's even better that we're adopted. We are adopted by God. So we no longer live in fear. And the spirit of adoption surrounds us. We're chosen. And so now number three, in Christ, this is number three, we are heirs which means we share the weight of being heirs. We are heirs with Christ, but that means that we share the weight of being heirs. And there's two ways that we share that weight. And we're pretty familiar with one of them, especially in our culture today, but we're not so familiar with the other. The two weights are the weight of privilege and the weight of burden. So I'll talk just a minute about the weight of privilege of being an heir because we seem to know a lot about that. And and The privilege of being an heir of Christ, though, we've been pounding on that for a while. We know about privilege in the world, but the privilege of being an heir with Christ means that we're chosen and loved, that we have peace with God, that we stand in grace with God and He's given us life and He's given us a new identity, that we stand justified before God. He looks at us and He sees righteousness. He's given us His wisdom and discernment. We have hope now because of the resurrection. We understand that we don't live in condemnation or punishment, but rather we're redeemed. We have the promise of the new Jerusalem. We live by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have a new family and community. And we get to share in the glory of God. It's God's glory, but we are also His glory, Paul tells us. And we share in that. So we get to bear the weight of all of this privilege. The Greek word for glory literally means weight or heaviness. And we get to share in that. But also, haven't you noticed that those who are heirs don't just get privilege? You ever notice that? Sometimes it's hidden from us very cleverly in a calculated way. You see, you and I, you and I as human beings, we're just so sure that if we could be the earthly heirs of the Vanderbilts or the Rockefellers or the Hiltons or the Gates or the Buffets, it would all be privilege. It would all be privilege. Not really. Do you understand that when we look at those errors, what we see in the media are managed images of what their lives are like? It's not all privilege. There is always, always, always a weight of burden that comes with that kind of privilege. Those who gain that privilege often try to avoid that weight of burden. They do. And, and, and their mind is like this, and I understand it. I would think the same thing. I've got 400 million dollars. I shouldn't have to bear the weight of any responsibility or any burden. Why would that happen? Because you live in a fallen world, my friend. But they try to avoid it. They try to avoid it. They try to avoid it. But it's there. It will not be denied. And if that's true here, it's definitely true when it comes to the cross of Christ. Jesus says, you've got to deny yourself and pick up your cross. There's a burden that we bear. And, and, it, and it's summed up by Paul in that verse 17 thing that, that he has to hit us with now, provided we suffer with him. We look at that and we go, man, it was going so well, Paul. Why'd you do that? Why'd you have to rain on our adoption parade? Why did you do why would you bring that up now, Paul? Well, here's why Here, here's the first thing that we need to understand and acknowledge about suffering, and that is that suffering always precedes glory. We live in a time and a culture that just wants the glory without the suffering. But suffering always precedes glory. In fact, James Montgomery Boyce says it this way, suffering is the path to glory. It's the necessary path. It's it's the fact that the cross came before the resurrection. And it's the fact that our crosses come before our resurrection as well it's Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 through 11 where Jesus came and he descended first into his suffering before he ascended back into his glory that's the way it works here's why Paul writes this he writes it because many of the people he was writing to in Rome were suffering they were suffering especially for their faith and he wants to encourage them see Paul is a realist and he understands that people suffer and that that's part of life And understand, in the Greek it says, uh, that that little phrase that we we translate, provided we suffer, it sounds kind of like in the English, like we have a choice, but in the Greek it's clear, there is no choice. It's assumed that we will suffer because that is the condition of humanity. The Bible is realistic in its approach to life. That's one of the things I like about the Bible. It doesn't sugarcoat anything, it doesn't paint these false pictures of what life is really going to be like. And because the Bible deals in reality, the Bible will never paint a humanistic, Oprah-ish, suffering-can-be-eliminated approach to life because that's just a lie. Anyone here suffering today? Anyone? I'm sure you are. It's part of life. Jesus said said this in John 16, 33. By the way, This is a promise from Jesus. I don't often see it in the promises of God books. Those are filled with how I'm going to be rich and happy and all that stuff. You never see this promise in the promises of God books. Here's what he says. He says, in this world you will have what? Cupcakes? You will have trouble. You're going to have trouble in this world. You're going to have trouble. Are there any exceptions to this truth? C.S. Lewis says this. Try to exclude the possibility of suffering and you find you have excluded life itself. You see, in the temporal sense, in the temporal sense, right here on earth, Jesus is not the big brother who comes down and says, I'm going to get you out of this. Instead, Jesus is the big brother who comes down and says, let's fight together. By the power of my spirit in you, let's Tredge on. So would you like encouragement today? I know, I know. You and I, I'm the same way. We want to be taken out of our, forget the encouragement, just take me out of my suffering. But if that doesn't happen, which happens to be God's prerogative, and it's not his normal MO to just take us out of the suffering, he goes through it with us. How about some encouragement? Here you go. Number one, Paul specifically talks about suffering in the context of our adoption and coming to glory because that is an encouragement to us because he wants us to know our suffering is temporary. We have a a future. We have the resurrection. We have the new Jerusalem. We have a hope, and it's a guaranteed hope. He also tells us in Romans chapter 5 that suffering can purify us and train us. He says in Romans chapter 5, rejoice in the fact now that you have peace with God. Rejoice that you stand in His grace. But then he says, starting in verse 3, you should also rejoice in your sufferings. Why, Paul? Why do you do this to us? Here's why. He says we should rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces, the Greek word is hupomene. Suffering produces perseverance. It's also translated endurance, patience my favorite, steadfastness. We don't use that word much anymore, but it's a beautiful picture of what it really produces. Suffering produces hupomene, and that hupomene in our life then produces character, and character finishes its work in the hope of God being poured out by the Holy Spirit into our hearts because He loves us. So it purifies and trains us, and Suffering can also be a powerful tool for the testimony of the reality of Jesus in the believer's life. As we see, as, as as other people see us going through our suffering by the power of the Holy Spirit, they look and they say, That's different. Why do you have the ability to do this? It can't possibly be you. And we can say it's Jesus. The founding pastor of our Gilbert congregation, Tom Schrader, some of you know him. He's had it rough the last nine years. A couple years ago, he was diagnosed with lupus. He's now 64 years old. He was diagnosed with lupus. All the symptoms of lupus. Autoimmune disease. Some people would call it a, a form of cancer. On January 10th, he had a, 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 a six-hour quadruple bypass heart surgery that he's at home recovering now from 64 years old when he was 30 or 40 if you had told him you're going to have lupus and have quadruple bypass when you're 64 he would have said you're crazy that's not going to happen to me and 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 the seven years prior to that he watched his wife of 30 years susan courageously battle breast cancer and then die from the breast cancer and he went through that with her too. That guy has suffered more than, than most of us have ever suffered. And, and, and admittedly, Tom is like my spiritual father. I'm close to him. But one of the greatest things, one of the greatest privileges in my life has been watching him go through these last nine years and look at his attitude during this life and go, that's not a human being with that attitude going through this stuff that's God that's a testimony of the Holy Spirit in his life that's the resurrected Christ taking over his life and and walking through this with him and I look at Tom's life and I go God must be real Christ must be real the testimony is true the gospel is real And so we go through this suffering so that the Holy Spirit can come alongside of us and show the rest of the world that it's not by the power of of man, but it's by the power of God. And it's a great testimony. And finally, the reality is that suffering is the path to glory. As Christ suffered and then claimed victory, so must we. I'm going to end today the same way Sean ended last week, by reading Scripture. It's a great way to end a message. There's a great corollary passage to this and what we're going to look at next week found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's verses 16 through 18. Listen to what Paul writes here. So then, we do not lose heart. In other words, he says, we have hope. We have genuine hope. So then, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this Light momentary affliction. Paul's not making fun of our suffering there. He's just making sure that we understand the comparison to what's coming. He means our suffering there. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let me pray, and David's going to come and lead us in our time of response and reflection. God, we thank you for your grace, your truth, your willingness to tell us the truth and not sugarcoat it. And God, we thank you for our adoption. We thank you that, that we are your children. By the power of your Holy Spirit, God, we thank you for that. We praise you. We worship you. We cannot do anything worthy or righteous or just apart from you. And so, God, we're thankful that you have given us your spirit, the advocate, the paraclete, to help us live. God, thank you for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.